Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Live theater has been cautiously returning to our city, and many of us are anxious to get out and support our artistic community. Others, however, may not be ready for in-person theatrical entertainment, and if that's you, fear not. We've got you covered. Coming up, City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy shares ways to see Broadway musical theater from the comfort of your own home. First, world-famous Atlanta architect John Portman's legacy can be seen all over our city. From SunTrust Plaza to the Hyatt Regency to the Marriott Marquis, his imprint on Atlanta and our skyline is legendary. Portman, who passed away in 2017 at the age of 93, was also a celebrated sculptor and painter. And his final sculpture, the Cohen, is now in its permanent home on the campus of Portman's alma mater, Georgia Tech University. Standing 40 feet tall, the Cohen's creation came by way of a very eclectic process involving a luxury bath company, a boat manufacturer, and even a supercomputer at Georgia Tech School of Aerospace Engineering. Joining me now are a couple of members of that unusual team, Stanley Mickey Steinberg, Portman's lifelong collaborator, and Russell Adams, the president and chief design officer at MTI Baths. Mickey and Russell, welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us, Kim. Well, thank you both for being here. Mickey, tell us how the Cohen Project got started. Did Georgia Tech University commission Portman? That's correct. The provost came to see John, and he had been working hard for years at Tech because he felt that Tech, they needed to learn something about art, and about creativity, etc., so he started a program where they would buy art and place it out and learn about it. He called me. I was on the council that was helping him do all this. And he asked me if I would ask John about doing one for tech. And I said, you better do it. One reason they wanted John is that John would be the only tech graduate who has a piece of sculpture on the campus. Oh, wow. And uh, John was getting ill about this time. And John said, well, I think I'd like to try to do it. And so uh, John immediately started working on a design. And after about a year, he uh, called me and put the model he had there on the table. And he said, what do you think about it? 
And I said, well, uh, he says, I know you don't like it. <laughs> and I said, well, that's about right. He says, you know something? I don't like it either. <laughs> so he tore it up. And he said, I'm going to have to start over. And he said, but before I do, this piece has to talk to people. It's got to mean something. It's not just another meaningless sculpture. He came up with the idea, you know, tech has lots and lots of knowledge. Tech, tech students and faculty and everybody out there, they do a lot of research. He said, but what they don't have is creativity. And it takes those three things to really do great engineering. It takes knowledge, it takes research, and it takes creativity. He said, so we, I'm going to do something that is those three things working together. That's the going to be my concept. Now I can really go to work. And he started over. When he was about half through, we sat down and he said, got to give it a name. We finally got the name. And uh, I said, I'm not sure anybody will know what it means. He says, well, they can look it up. And what it means is it's a word that in the uh, Buddhist religion, the, the uh, priests sit around in a circle and they discuss a subject or a thing and they spend days, if it's necessary, looking for truth. And he said, ah, George, that's great. I'm going to do this with, with these things. Three things are working together, but they're going around and around and around looking for truth. And so that's where we came with, up with the name. I love that. And my understanding is, aside from looking for truth, it's usually presented in the form of a riddle, right? That's correct. So I think the sculpture speaks so well to that because when you look at it as an outsider, it is a riddle. It is indeed. And I would love to pause here if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to describe it. All right. Well, what it is, is it's three round wings, let's call them. And they're put on top of each other, working together, tied together, except they aren't true rings. Uh, the way John designed it, he wanted them to have you know, multiple shapes. And it's interesting the way he designed it, the three shapes are identical, except for where they come touch each other. But he broke each one into two parts. And those two parts are identical. We can make them out of the same mold. So each one of those circles is made out of two identical pieces. And you wouldn't know that looking at it. We can only see it if we would take a model and cut it up for you. Mm. And you can see it there. And so that that's what he, and he got on it. And he really went to town on it. <laughs> it is stunning. You have no starting point. You have no straight line anywhere on that piece. And he got excited about it. And he had been talking about doing a 12-foot one. And uh, well, Russell, tell him about how we did 12-foot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess 12 feet didn't really happen, huh, Russell? Well, he started out having us replicate an 18-inch sculpture that was in his office. And um, we came down there, my sister and I, to meet with him. And he asked if we could replicate this little 18-inch sculpture. And uh, we said, yeah, we could, but we'd have to take it and make a rubber mold off of it. And so uh, he said, well, here, take it from the office right now and go do it. And um and we were, our jaws dropped because to us, it was like a priceless artifact, a masterpiece. And um, he tried to hand us a bronze sculpture as well. And um, so we didn't know what had just happened. And we stumbled out of there and uh, created a replica by taking his original and making a rubber mold 
and then pouring our material into it and uh, popped it off and it looked just like his original. And we brought that back to him and said, here it is. And he said, well, can you make one 21 feet was his first challenge. And then, and uh, that's where we said, well, we took it back and talked to our engineers and scratched our heads and talked to all of our vendors and uh, figured out how we could make it 21 feet, which was quite co complicated for us. We make bathtubs and sinks and showers and things like that. But the way we were able to take the 18 inch piece and make it larger was we 3D scanned it and made a exact 3D replica and then 3D printed that on a smaller scale. We figured out how to build that and it was going to be built out of uh, steel with fiberglass and resin and our material on top of it. And um, we brought that proposal to him and he said, yeah, that, that, that looks great and slid it off the table and said, this is the one I really want. <laughs> And, and do, it was the do you three think he piece. knew the whole time? Yeah. Oh, he did. It was it was a master plan. He was he was testing us the whole time. Oh he, my he gave gosh. us small little challenges, and after after we met each challenge, then it got bigger and bigger. Wow. We went from there to uh, realizing we couldn't make that sculpture out of the materials you normally do. Normally, you make make them out of uh, metal. But we're in an area where we have remnants of hurricanes. Right. We need to be able to take the wind. And those three things are sails. You put them up right, <laughs> and they're like big sails. As we talked about it, we realized we couldn't make this out of materials that we normally use to build them. It, they're not strong enough. And the only materials that we, anybody knew that was strong enough was carbon fiber. And that's what they build airplane wings out of and spaceships and all of that. But you know, I know how to build buildings, and I know how to build, build big buildings. And I built them out of steel and concrete, but I've never built anything like this out of carbon fiber. So we went around and around, and finally we came up with the idea of going to the aerospace uh, school at Georgia Tech. That makes sense. They're the best in the country. In the meantime, Mr. Portman, he was very ill. He called me in one day, and he said, you know, Mickey, y'all going to have to build this for me. I'm going to be here. And like I always said to him, Mr. Portman, we'll get it built. Hmm. And I made a commitment that I wasn't sure how could, we could do. <laughs> I couldn't have done it without Russell and his people. We had to find people who could work with this material. We had to figure out collectively how to build it. And that was a two and a half year process. And I think I heard originally you were hoping to have it done within seven months to a year. That's correct. Yeah, that's a lot longer, huh? Yep. You guys really persevered with this project. There were a lot of complications. Yeah, it was a long time on that kind of testing. But we started the project in 2015 right. when we first started talking about it with Mr. Portman and didn't uh, get it erected until late 2020. So it took about five years from that's our side. Amazing. And when he originally approached you, was it because of his desire to have your materials on the finish? Yes. So we were building shower pans for the Hotel Indigo in Atlanta, which is one of his properties. And we were building the shower pans out of our material we called Sculpture Stone, which is a solid surface material. It's ground minerals and resin and engineered stone, basically. And he liked that surface a lot. Uh, his uh, VP, uh, Rob Halverson, who's now president and runs Portman Associates, had done a tour at MTI and had seen some small little sculptures we'd made out of the same material. And he brought back that story to Mr. Portman, who wanted to come tour at MTI. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to because he became sick. But we brought him samples of the material 
and built the replicas I was talking about in our material. And that's what he wanted the, uh, the feel and the look of the outside of the sculpture to be. Had your company ever taken on jobs as basically you became project managers for this, right? Yes. We've never done anything in that capacity. We're used to uh, working with world-class architects and we're used to doing custom bathtubs and custom showers and custom bathing products, but nothing on, on this level at all. So the original 21-foot sculpture, we were going to build all in-house at MTI, but when wow. it became 40 feet, that's when we had to look to the outside and we pulled in some of our vendors who supply us with resins and they supply, you know, these, these, our sculpture stone material I'm talking about is high performance resin mixed with ground minerals. And those same resins are used in carbon fiber and using other um, high tech composites. And so we worked with our vendor and said, who else works in these materials? And he came with a list of people that work in carbon fiber. And so kind of outsourced that part and had to interview a bunch of different companies that could do that part of the, of the build. You needed a place that could house and build something that was so much larger than anything you would normally ever deal with. Correct. So we had to find a much, much larger uh, milling machine. And so we looked into the boating industry and we found a company that makes 50 foot power boats out of carbon fiber. And they have a big, big building with a giant CNC machine where you take a big, big block of, of foam and you use this machine to mill out what becomes the boat, that becomes the boat mold, what they lie up the carbon fibers. So in this case, they were able to, uh, to build these molds, these two molds, one piece at a time in this giant machine. The boats that this guy produced, where he uses this material is on the hulls of the boat. And uh, I think his boats will go over hundred miles an hour. Oh my gosh. They go 120, some of them up to 150 miles an hour and they're 50 foot long boats that'll cut through the ocean. <laughs> Have either of you ever been on a boat going that fast? That sounds ridiculous. Not me. Not, Not me, me either. either. <laughs> oh my gosh. A lot of those boats are sold over in uh, Saudi Arabia and, and in the Middle East to oil sheiks and people like that. They'll fly a plane over and load the boat into the plane and fly oh. it back over to, to Dubai. That's just absolutely nuts. It's also really kind of insane that a bath company and a boat company ended up getting involved to make a sculpture with someone who's much better known for making buildings. We worked together, eventually brought the six pieces to Georgia Tech, and then that's where the fun started. One of the hard things were that whole thing is supported on three structures that hold it take it into the ground. Yeah, I'm glad you're talking about that. It almost looks like it's balancing impossibly. The thing we had to do is hide all those connections. We've got connections in there that are huge, hmm. but we managed to shape them where they would fit inside the structure. Can either of you speak a little to how it's viewable from different angles and what changes with lighting? So when you walk around the sculpture, even though it's three rings that are identical, you can't tell. And when you walk around, it looks like it's moving and they all look a little bit different. Also, the light from the sun comes into play and the shadows uh, change it a bit. And uh, you can kind of walk through it and experience the sculpture. And Mr. Portman had told me that he wanted the students to be able to kind of walk around it, walk through it, and experience it differently from different angles. And he really achieved that. So you, when, you, when you go there and see it, it's just amazing. And it, it does change completely when you, when you walk around it, look at it from different vantage points. 
if you were just told that those three pieces are identical and you tried to walk around and figure it out, you can't. And that was, that's part of That's the riddle. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. From our side, we just couldn't be more proud to work with Mr. Portman on his final sculpture and, you know, had been admiring his buildings and he pretty much designed the skyline of Atlanta and to be able so to work true. with him on his, on his final sculpture was amazing. He was an interesting man. He was an incredible man. What are some places in the city where people who might be unfamiliar with Portman's artwork, but know his buildings well, could go and see some of his paintings and sculptures? His paintings and sculptures are in all of his buildings in Atlanta. So if anyone wants to go down to any of those buildings, there are commissions from other artists, but most of the art is John Portman art. And there are big paintings, small paintings, and larger sculptures. The uh, SunTrust Plaza, there's a lot of the art in there. And there's a piece of art in there he did which you can see it's a little bit kin to the piece we did. Oh. Only it's made out of, it's indoors. What a fun adventure for Atlantans if they weren't familiar to be able to sneak around downtown Atlanta and now look for Portman art. You know, our buildings, we did the mart. We did the Hyatt Regency. We did the... Uh, Eastry Plaza? Yeah, Plaza. I don't remember exactly how many square feet of building we did that but it was huge and it was that work that kept Atlanta from turning into a, a parking lot mm. nobody was building downtown and also every one of those buildings when you go inside the atrium is a sculpture in itself and if you go into even the downtown Marriott and you look up and look above you it is designed to be a beautiful atrium that's for all the people but it is in itself a work of art and beautiful John Fortman's goal was that people would enjoy being in. You sit in them, you don't feel like you're being entertained or anything. You just like where you're at. Stanley Mickey Steinberg, lifelong collaborator of the legendary Atlanta architect and artist, John Portman. Steinberg was joined by Russell Adams, MTI Bass President and Chief Design Officer, and together they shared the story behind John Portman's last and final sculpture the Cohen on the Georgia Tech campus. You can learn more about the sculpture on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll revisit the first time that City Lights host Lois Reitzes sat down with New York Times food writer Kim Severson. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. 
Journalist and food writer Kim Severson is the former Atlanta bureau chief for the New York Times. Severson's books include her memoir, Spoon Fed, How Eight Cooks Saved My Life, and she's won four James Beard Awards for food writing. Severson first joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes back in 2017, and she began by explaining what a food writer really does. What, well, we work a lot, we write a lot, and we eat a lot. Uh, we, you know, I started out um, like uh, a lot of people of my generation. We were post-Watergate babies, and we ran to journalism school to try to blow the lid off this whole thing, which didn't exactly work out great, but, but we're still trying. Um, and I had, But I'd always cooked, and I waited tables on my way through uh, college, and short order cooked, and my mom cooked, and uh, I was doing a lot of news and feature writing, and was able to slowly start to write more about uh, the culture of food, the way people ate. Those were always the stories I was interested in. I was always kind of gravitating toward the kitchen and um, eventually got a job as a full-time food news writer back in the late 90s at the San Francisco Chronicle. And that was kind of when I started food writing full-time. But you know, since then, food has just exploded. It is the, the cultural currency of our time, you know, in the way that uh, jazz was maybe in the 20s or film in the 70s. Um, it is Food is now the way that we really express our culture, I think. Well, is there a greater common denominator? No, that's probably true. Everybody eats. Yeah. Everybody eats. And even when I was doing news, I, I came to Atlanta to uh, be the Southern Bureau Chief for the National Desk for the Times, and uh, I got my best tips from people that I was, I started out talking food with, or if you were out on, you know, a tornado or a shooting or following a politician, all the things that are involved in a job like that. If you start talking food with people, the doors opened. Immediate connection. Well, I'm delighted you brought up being a Watergate baby or post-Watergate baby because in the New York Times, there's a feature you wrote about the Atlanta-based chef Asha Gomez with a headline on a quest in India. And reading that article, I was reminded of something Kurt Vonnegut once said. This was also in the 70s. And this so disappointed me, Kim, because um, he may have been my favorite author of all time at that time. And Vonnegut wrote... Fiction is melody. Journalism is noise. Oh, Oh, okay. I'm going to read the opening from your article. In the shade of a cardamom patch on the South Indian mountainside, Asha Gomez leaned against a tree and began to cry. That's a melody worthy of fiction. Thank you. Yeah, and um, it certainly illustrates your literary approach to food, also really proving Kurt Vonnegut wrong. Tell us what you learned with Asha in India. Uh, well, what a wonderful opportunity to uh, to travel with her. She's a chef, as many people know, who um, had a spa in Atlanta for some time, and the secret weapon was after your Ayurvedic treatment, you would she would cook for people, and she would cook healing food because you know the combination of what we traditionally think of as spa treatments here, but of massage and 
um, and all the other kinds of things, not pedicures probably, but a massage and food and health go together and they're just tightly woven That's uh, in the India. Ayurveda. Right. And so she would feed people and she opened a restaurant uh, that she lost the spa in the downturn, the recession. Uh, and she kept at it and opened a restaurant called Cardamom Hill that some people might remember. So when I first moved to Atlanta, um, eating at Cardamom Hill made – I moved here from New York City, and I thought, this is this is going to work out. They've got good food here. I can handle this. So I was really, really impressed with her food. She had decided to go back to Kerala. She hadn't been to India for eight years since she went to adopt her son, Ethan. Um, and she wanted to go back and kind of get in touch with it. And since that time, then she had been back, her star has really risen. You know, her book, My Two Souths, in which she does recipes and uh, talks a lot about how southern India and the southern United States are very similar in, in many ways culinarily, which it was really an interesting eye-opening piece to me. I discovered in Kerala, which is the very southern tip of, of India, um, probably the most literate, uh, state in India, certainly the most religiously mixed because it was a port city, and a ginormous fried chicken loving population. And there's a green fried chicken. There's all kinds of fried chicken there. It's amazing. People love to fry chicken there. So I can sort of see how for Asha it was a mix. But there we were in, uh, you know, she said, I'm going to go. And uh, she's working uh, on a PBS show now. And she had a producer for that and a couple other young kids who um, film a. Um, uh, do video for a uh, web show that she does. It's a recipe. She, you can subscribe and get recipes. And she said, do you want to come? I was like, sure. So we got a photographer uh, who shot her cookbook, Evan Sung, whose images are beautiful. If nothing else, you should go online uh, to the Times story and see the, the photographs in our slideshow he sent. But we all piled onto a plane and flew 22 hours to Kerala. And there we were. There I was careening around Kerala uh, in a van with all these people and it was it was amazing it was a, just a tremendous opportunity to sit back and watch her watch somebody kind of get reintroduced to a country that she left when she was 16 to try to be a tv personality while she was working on they were filming this show and they had an indian film crew with us sometimes and also to eat and to have memories and to really i could really just watch the parts of her come together it was amazing after the course of a few days to see her knit uh, these two parts of her, uh, you know, the, the sort of U.S. food star part of her, uh, the mom part of her that had adopted a boy from India, and the teenager who grew up there. And so that's when we were in the cardamom field uh, and they were filming. She just, I think it, she just had a moment and it all came together. And when you're writing a story like this, you are always looking for that one moment that really, where you can take the reader and drop them in. And, and that was the moment when she just lost it in those in that cardamom patch well and you took us there and and you know the fragrance the scent of it all it, it was just marvelous oh, thank you her love for the food of Carla, her native state is an example of how little we in the u.s know about india about the 1.3 billion people who lived there how does she hope to address that? How does Asha Gomez hope to address that through her work now? Well, she talks very much about being uh, an innovator and so and a translator of sorts. So I certainly didn't know much about the food of Kerala. And she cooks food that is um, really uh, 
delicious for one thing, which helps. It's her food is she's a great cook. But if you've ever listened to her uh, speak, she has this way of articulating that food and making it very personal. And she has just this little slight accent. She'll say, mm-hmm. Kim, the black pepper, the black pepper <laughs> is so, and it's just, it's lilting. It's lovely to listen to. I know you're in radio, so you really understand that oral um, delight. So she, and she has a real ability to, to explain it in a way that's, um, that's very simple, but also very rich. And I think it's accessible. So her plan is to keep doing, um, I think, uh, she does a lot of dinners, private dinners. People can call up and say, I want to have this meal or that meal. And she's doing, I think, quite well with that. Uh, she's continuing to do media, this PBS show. And I think um, everywhere she goes, she feels, and I, I talk in the story how she's trying to, to lasso the beautiful food of Kerala and drag it back here. And she's uh, she's just simply an ambassador for it. Um, and I think for for not only Indian food, but I also think she's joining an increasing number of cooks and chefs in America who are from other countries who are um, not uh, mangling or watering down their food to meet the American palate because the American palate has grown. So now someone from a particular region of Mexico can just cook the regional food they know without feeling like it has to all be covered with cheese and Mm -hmm. Tex-Mex. And that's happening with uh, chefs all over the country. And it's because people are ready to eat that kind of food. Our, you know, We've elevated our cooking skills and our palates over the last decade, and people are, are very open to new tastes and new flavors. And it's one more example of the marvels of having a multicultural society. Is We're able to experience all of these things. India is very multicultural, and I think that's something Asha Gomez also hopes to create awareness about because from reading your article, we learned that, you know, there was a strong Portuguese influence here. They ate pork. They eat pork mm-hmm. um, and wine. And, uh, right. yeah. And, you know, I was so fascinated with India because I, you know, like all of us, and, and perhaps we grew up with the very accessible tandoori and the you know, maybe a little uh, vindaloo if we got, you know, uh, excited and non and, uh, you know, but it is that that um, that sort of British influenced Indian food that we ate, butter chicken, you know, that's not an Indian dish. It's sort of the British influence of, um, you know, interpretation of Indian food. Uh, when we got there, I was just so fascinated. There's a, the, the region of Kerala is very, it's almost gluten-free. It's almost all rice. But people in India are so specific about the food that comes from their region one of the, the people that I interviewed uh, uh, said that there will be people who travel from North India to Kerala for whatever reason, and they will bring 20 people in a bus and they'll come down and they'll bring their own cooks and negotiate with the hotel to have the cook go into the hotel kitchen and cook the food from their region. People are so, I mean, they're worse than Italians like this. They're like <laughs> the food from my, you know, they have to eat the food from their region. It's fascinating. And then, you know, religious uh uh, doctrine comes into how people eat in in India, obviously. Uh, in Kerala, it's about a little over half Hindu, and there's a bunch of Muslims, and so uh, who brought with them the biryanis and the rice dishes. So in Kerala, because it's such a mixed community, some of the best biryanis, particularly in North Kerala, uh, the best biryanis in, in India are from that, which you wouldn't 
think of. So these are all, th- I was just, uh, every day, my little notebook was filled and filled and filled <laughs> with things like this. If you're just joining us, you're listening to City Lights on 90.1 WABE. I'm Loris Reitzes, here with you and Kim Severson, food writer and correspondent covering the nation's food culture for the New York Times. Kim, when you described um, Asha's uh, passion for her two Souths, her book and, and that take, it kind of reminded me of something that you hinted at early on when you came here about your appreciation of how Southern food and Atlanta restaurants being farm-driven, and you even paid an enormous compliment, I thought, when you compared Southerners and food to Italians. Oh, I think that's really true, and I I came down like a lot of people who didn't live in the South and uh, had sort of a monolithic monolithic view of Southern food and uh, and the region. And as I traveled from state to state, as I, I did when I was doing the uh, a lot more when I was doing the job for the National Desk and would be in small towns, and I came to see that. Uh, you know the, the the way someone makes greens in Robeson County and makes them into a um, they make a, a collard sandwich on two little fried slices of uh, or fried pieces of cornbread could not be more different than how somebody in Arkansas might make greens if they make them at all because there's not a lot of collards not a lot of collards up in Arkansas the way uh, somebody in South Carolina what they're going to have on their dinner table could not be more different than what somebody in northern Louisiana does and and I came to see how regional the south was because it's very agriculturally driven in the way that Italy is uh, it's it's small enough and personal enough that people pass recipes on uh, you know, almost county to county, the recipes can be different. And so it really reminded me of Italy in that way. And it is very much a, an of-the-table culture. It's not so much about technique, although technique matters, but it's really about uh, a sense of place and making food um, at the, t- you know, making food at the table for that day and how you're going to feed your family, which is very much uh, like Italy to me. I, it, it was a great revelation. Well, it's all about warmth and family and sharing food. And I really hope you'll want to come back, will you? Absolutely. Can we cook together sometime? Oh, my goodness. We can cook on the radio. It'll be fantastic. (laughs) Oh, I'd love it. Okay, just got the studio renovated. How about a kitchen in here? That's what we need. We Mm. could do it. (laughs) Put a hot plate right over there. Kim Severson covers the nation's food culture for the New York Times. Her writing also appears in Garden and Gun magazine. She's won four James Beard Awards for food writing, and her books include the remarkable memoir, Spoon Fed, How Eight Cooks Saved My Life. Kim Severson, thank you again. You're welcome. My great pleasure. New York Times food writer Kim Severson talking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. You can learn more about Severson and her writing on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy shares ways to see Broadway musical theater from the comfort of your own home. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes. In for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. 
As exciting as it is that live performance is coming back to our city, and it is exciting, not all of us are quite ready to head out to a full house just yet. City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy and host Lois Reitzes have more. Live theater has been cautiously returning to Atlanta, and we've been excited about telling you which shows you can see in person and with certain protocols. We also know that not all of us are ready to attend live theater. So today, we'd like to share some ways you can bring Broadway home. Joining me now is City Lights engineer, contributor, and resident theater maven, Shelley Canavy. Hi, Shelley. Hi, Lois. You have had a long and loving relationship with theater. Tell us more about it. Well, my love of theater really started with music. There was always music in my house, and my my dad was a big music lover, and he particularly loved Phantom of the Opera and Michael Crawford, who was the original Phantom. And as for performing, you know, my mom tells the story that she would open up the refrigerator door and the little light goes on and I would just start singing and dancing all over the house. <laughs> so just shine a flashlight on me and I'm ready to go. But I did study musical theater in New York and I did do shows in New York and in Baton Rouge and in Dallas. And I did see a lot of Broadway shows when I was there and they were not all good, unfortunately. But I love being in a theater, seeing live theater, sitting next to people and laughing together. And I cry at almost everything. And it's just so nice to to know that you all just had like the same experience. Oh, it is such a glorious communal experience. Yeah. So I love the part about the little refrigerator light being your first spotlight. (laughs) Take it away. You and our producer Summer Evans have compiled a list of virtual theater options for those of us not quite ready to head out to a show. Well, I'm going to go ahead and start with one that you can stream at home or you can also see it live right now here in Atlanta. You no doubt are talking about Hamilton. I am. It's currently <laughs> playing at the fabulous Fox Theater, but you can also watch it at home with your family. It's screening on Disney Plus. So that's great news. Hamilton the musical is so phenomenally popular. I think it's fair to say the show itself is a part of American history now. The Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award-winning show is about Alexander Hamilton, his contributions to U.S. history and our financial system, and his relationships with Aaron Burr, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and others. The creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, was enthralled with the biography of Hamilton by Ron Chernow, and after reading it, he asked his mentor Stephen Sondheim if turning this history book into a musical was a crazy idea. Sondheim thought it was brilliant, and the rest 
is history. <laughs> this streaming on Disney Plus is amazing because you get to see all these superstars, the original cast at the Richard Rogers Theater. So it's Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's Leslie Odom Jr., Renee Elise Goldberry. It's amazing. And it's family-friendly, too. They have bleeped out some of the bad words, and sometimes they just put a little record scratch there. And related is Hamilton's America, which is a PBS documentary. It's amazing. It was filmed over three years, and it sort of follows Lin-Manuel Miranda from his apartment writing mm-hmm. for Hamilton. As it gets going, he goes with Leslie Odom Jr. to the Museum of American Finance. They both read the letters that went back and forth between Burr and Hamilton right before the duel. So it's really, really well done. It's a great film. You can watch it on YouTube. If you want to experience the musical in person... In the room where it happens, (laughs) the North American tour of Hamilton is at the Fox Theater now in Atlanta. They're playing through September 26th, and the cast is strong, don't you think? They are. It was really, really great, and they all brought a little something different to the roles, so it's not exactly the same, but it's... It's really, really great. The brilliance of the show. Mm -hmm. What's next up? Well, if you head over to Amazon Prime or Broadway HD, which is an on-demand digital streaming company, they have uh, live theater performances and films and uh, recorded theatrical productions. You can get that for a little fee. But playing there now is Falsettos. And this is a Tony Award-nominated 2016 revival version of this sung-through musical. Uh, it has Christian Borel and Andrew Rannells. It follows a modern middle-class family. It's a gay man, his son, his ex-wife, their therapist, and the lesbians next door as they're navigating family dynamics and the AIDS crisis. So it's really funny, though, actually, because uh, the writer, William Finn, believed that provoking laughter is more challenging than garnering tears. He wrote the book for this show with James Lapine, and it's it's really, really a beautiful show. Mm. And we'll have more from James Lapine a little later. We what, will. What about an option for the kids? Tell us about some family musicals available for streaming. Well, Shrek the Musical is now streaming on Netflix. And if you've seen the cartoon, this is extremely similar, which is kind of amazing that they made all of the stuff that's usually only able to happen through animation. They made it all happen on stage. So it's the 2008 Broadway show. It has Sutton Foster in it, Brian Darcy James, Chris Sieber, and Chris Sieber plays... Lord Farquaad, the little tiny prince. Uh, and Chris Sieber is six foot three. And so we had to figure out how he was going to play this tiny prince. He was super <laughs> excited about the role and loved playing it, but he wasn't really sure what to do. He ended up playing the entire show on his knees. He's got fancy, uh, they tried a whole bunch of different contraptions to get him comfortably on his knees for that long, but he's got some foam padding and he's even got special socks that separate all his toes so that he can have (laughs) stability in the back. It's really crazy, but it makes for an awesome visual effect and it's really, really funny. Oh, you are revealing the secrets. I am. (laughs) Into the Woods is one of my favorite shows ever. 
if a historical biography seemed unusual inspiration for Hamilton, how about a psychoanalytic essay on how children process fairy tales as your point of departure? James Lapine wrote the book for Into the Woods after reading The Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim. This screening of the original Broadway cast with Stephen Sondheim's music stars the amazing Bernadette Peters and Joanna Gleason. The story focuses on a baker and his wife who've been cursed by a witch and are sent on a quest to collect several items. Along the way, they meet Cinderella, Rapunzel, Little Red Riding Hood, and others, all on similar expeditions. You can also find video of the Central Park production from 2012, and a Disney film was made in 2014, starring friend of the show Emily Blunt, Meryl Streep, and James Corden. Yeah, the film is great, but there is nothing like that original production. Of course, Into the Woods by our Lord and Savior, Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> it is, it's really beautiful. Amen. Bernadette, right? Bernadette Peters is amazing as the witch. It's those characters that you know, but it's the Brothers Grimm version, so it's a little bit darker. And it's actually, I would say that it would be good for kids because I feel like those adult themes and those darker moments sort of just fly over their head. So the music is great. It's just, it's a really, really beautiful film with a lot of good lessons. Oh, it's gorgeous. And the music is so magnificent. Shelley, Don and I had the privilege of seeing it on Broadway with Bernadette Peters as the witch. I'll never forget it. I bet. That's amazing. So what else have we got? Well, on Amazon Prime, there's Carousel. Now, this is not a fully staged musical. This is sort of semi-staged in a kind of concert version. But it's the Rodgers and Hammerstein favorite that they created right after Oklahoma. And in 1999, Time Magazine named it the best musical of the 20th century. So people love this show. It's been revived tons and tons of times. Uh, It follows carnival barker Billy Bigelow. Uh, He finds out that his girlfriend's going to have a baby, so he commits a robbery to try to provide for them. And, of course, it goes tragically wrong. But he's given a second chance to make things right. And um, this production is live from Lincoln Center. It stars Kelly O'Hara and opera star Nathan Gunn with music by the New York Philharmonic. And it's just beautiful. It's just a great classic, classic show. Kelly O'Hara is probably her generation's Bernadette Peters. She is sensational. sure. Yes, she is. Now, we understand that even if you prefer streaming at home, you still want to support our local arts community. So here are some options to do just that. 
art? Uh, yeah, if you go over to the Center for Puppetry Arts website, The Little Red Hen and the Grain of Wheat is available to stream. There are hand puppets that tell the story of a hen who finds a grain of wheat, and she wants to harvest the wheat, but none of the other animals will help her, so she decides to do it all by herself. We've got lessons for kids, hard work, responsibility, sharing, helping your neighbor. Uh, it's about 40 minutes long. It's presented through Zoom, and there is also a Q&A after the performance, so you can go on over to their website and check that out. We also have the She ATL Festival offering digital performances of the in-person performance that they had um, just a few weeks ago. Uh, she ATL elevates the voices of women and non-binary writers. And so they've got September 9th, Four Wives and a Will. September 10th, you can see, and God forbid it should be so. And on September 11th, they're playing to free a mockingbird. So it's all recordings of the live performances. You can get a digital ticket to a YouTube performance. So go to the She ATL website and check that out. Plus, the Alliance Theater has Sounds of the West End. Uh, it's a story that was inspired by a book called In the West End that was written by Will Power. It's a story about a little boy looking for vegan food for his grandmother. So he goes in the West End neighborhood and looking around. And this is a really interesting, immersive audio adventure. Uh, you can hear the whoosh of the MARTA trains. You can hear people talking on the sidewalk and learn about vegan cooking in Atlanta. So that's streaming through their website, Alliance Theater Anywhere. And we are lucky to have the playwright Will Power living in Atlanta now. I know that you've spoken with Will Power, and he's so amazing. He wrote a musical called Stagger Lee that I just hope takes off because it's such a powerful, powerful musical for our time. So anything by Will Power, I'm in. Oh, I think he did a staging of Richard III with rap music, That's right. too. Yeah. Well, last but not least is the Atlanta Opera. They're offering past performances through their streaming platform. You can go to atlantaopera.org to check that out. And right now they've got Three Penny Opera up there. They've got a concert of music by Kurt Vile. That's one of my faves. Me and, too. Right? And there's a variety show with bluegrass and gospel and pop music. So there's kind of something for everybody over there on the Atlanta Opera website. Yeah. And given their attention to... Full-scale production values. The director, Tomer's Walloon, loves film. and You really get a full sensory experience from the Atlanta Opera productions that you can stream. Yes. Shelley Canavy, this has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lois. Anytime. I'll see you at the theater. Indeed. City Lights host Lois Reitzes talking with our engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy. You can learn more about the different streaming options that they discussed on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally today, since we started the show talking about the Cohen sculpture, let's end the show talking about another sculpture that's just been commissioned, an eight-foot bronze sculpture of civil rights leader Zernona Clayton will be erected in downtown Atlanta later this fall. World-renowned sculptor Ed Dwight will be creating this memorial as a way to pay homage to Clayton and all of her achievements with racial justice. 
Ed Dwight's story is kind of unusual. He was the first African-American astronaut candidate in the 1960s. He retired from the Air Force in 1966, and then he pivoted to have a career in his first love, art. He's designed memorials and sculptures all over the world, from the Tower of Freedom International Underground Railroad Memorial in Ontario, Canada, to the African-American History Monument in Columbia, South Carolina. This sculpture won't be the first time that Ed Dwight and Zernona Clayton have been connected. Clayton is the founder of the Trumpet Awards Foundation and the creator of the Trumpet Awards. The award ceremony was created to celebrate the achievements of Black Americans who have succeeded against immense odds. Ed Dwight received a Trumpet Award in 2007. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Artscape 2021, the Georgia State University short film project that used Atlanta street art as a stage for a mix of spoken word and theatrical scenes. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes. You can follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights and on Instagram at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.